Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What condition conversation was in? Jay talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talk to a man whose name is Bradley J. Improved my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in to see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah. And here we go. You are Jay talking. We're live midnight to five. And it's Anthony Samarco and long awaited, sir. It's been a while due to the holidays, right? It has. Seems like a long time since you've been in Anthony Samarco. And tonight we're going to talk about your shiny bright new book. At least it's the one I have is shiny bright and new. Brighton and Alston through time, which is doing very well, right? I understand. It has, yes. And then you're the perfect guy to talk about the Great Molasses Flood of 1919, later on. It sounds wonderful. I'd love to help. And uh, there seems to be a lot of interest in that, in the Big Molasses Flood. Well, it's surprising. Today is the 100th anniversary of the Great Molasses Flood. It started in January 15th of 1919. And not only was it 2.3 million gallons of molasses that actually cascaded through Commercial Street in Boston, but it was something that has gone on to become part of Boston's folklore history. And though it was true, it's something that's almost incomprehensible with many people to realize that molasses could create a flood. So we'll paint that picture and try to understand the scope of it and and the weirdness of it. I understand they had to chisel people out of frozen molasses because it was cold. Exactly. It was a typical January day. And not only was it cold in the morning, but by noontime it had reached almost to 50 degrees. But that evening, of course, with anywhere from two to three feet of molasses in all directions, it froze over. And it didn't just freeze. It also froze over horses and bodies as well as uh, all sorts of street life. You had to realize it was the Captain Buchanan of Engine 31 in the Boston North End. And it was he who actually recommended that they sweep the streets of Boston with salt water from fire hoses. And that was something that took place for six to eight weeks throughout January and February and early March that would eventually sweep the streets clean of the sticky, sweet molasses. So we'll get into that in some detail in the second part of this uh program well actually the second part of your time here but first i'm super excited about brighton and alston through time your book on what press this is font hill press in london Mm -hmm. because i'm really familiar with that area and this is going to be particularly fun now the the through time series is i think special because you have many photos photos from then and you have a a photographer that works with you and takes a now photo and lines it up perfectly so you can see the change. Well, Peter Kingman is a wonderful photographer. He has not only done the Back Bay Through Time book with me, but now Brighton and Alston Through Time. This is a series that is actually um, in full color. That's the most wonderful thing. And Alan Sutton, who is the publisher of Font Hill Press in London, is somebody who had started the Arcadia series. And over the last 30 to 35 years, almost every city, town, village in the United States has had one of the sepia-toned covers of Arcadia's uh, books published. And I did a book on almost every neighborhood of the city of Boston, as well as surrounding cities and towns. But his new book, which is Through Time, is something that not only juxtaposes older photographs, but with a new photograph in color. And what he said was he wanted to put color back into history. And he really did. But it's not only the fact that it's beautifully photographed, thanks to Peter Kingman, creates this wonderful, silky paper, 
beautiful glossy cover, but also beautiful font. And I think sometimes when you look at a book, which is a paperback, something that you could pick up and read 10 different times and see 10 different things every time you pick it up, it's something that kind of chronicles a neighborhood. But in this book, what I've tried to do is to juxtapose a few older 19th century photographs, but an awful lot of newer photographs of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And with a photograph of today in the same scene, thanks to Peter Kingman, you begin to realize in some ways how much the demographics as well as the streetscapes of Boston are changing. So after the period of World War II, we realized that the neighborhoods of Boston, which continue to thrive, are not just historical, but they're ever-evolving. So it creates a wonderful pictorial history of this neighborhood of Alston and Brighton. Let's set the Wayback Machine to colonial times. Before there was Alston and Brighton, there was just a cluster of buildings around the South Meeting House spreading out from there a little bit, the immediate Boston. At some point, that area that is now Brighton and Austin gets settled, when was that and what was its original flavor or purpose? Well, it had been settled even in the 17th century. Throughout the 17th and 18th century, what is today Brighton and Austin was part of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Newtown, as it was called in the very early 1630s, later to be renamed Cambridge, was something that had an area on the other side of the Charles River that was called Little Cambridge. And Little Cambridge was primarily the agrarian area of Cambridge. And throughout that period, there were extensive farms, and we saw it continuing throughout until the early part of the 19th century. There was a great bridge that connected Cambridge and Little Cambridge that was actually funded by the taxpayers, But the concept was Little Cambridge itself wanted its own identity. And in 1807, they petitioned the Great General Court of Massachusetts, and they created what would eventually become the town of Brighton, Massachusetts. And in that instance, it had separated from Cambridge, but it evolved in that early part of the 19th century as what had once been an agrarian aspect to its town, to what eventually became one of the most well-known areas of not only nurseries, because of Joseph Breck and a series of other nurserymen, but the abattoir and the market. Because in the 19th century, Brighton was not only known for its flowers, because of the nurseries, but it was also known for its meat. And in the period of even the 18th century, we saw George Washington during the American Revolution, procuring beef for the troops for the Continental Army, actually in what is Little Cambridge or present-day Brighton. So between the meat industry, which also had the abattoir along the Charles River, and the nurseries, you began to realize that Brighton's economy in the 19th century was tremendous. Land would be developed, and by the time of the Civil War, the population was increasing tremendously. And not only were there, you know, subdivisions of farms, but there were estates. And you began to realize that in the 19th century, this was a very up-and-coming market town. And in some instances, providing the city of Boston, again, with not only flowers, but also the meat. Two quick questions Following up there, the bridge you mentioned, is that the one that still exists between Harvard and... It doesn't doesn't exist any longer. Of course, the bridges that are there today are the turn of the 20th century. This would have actually been, even in the 17th century, it would have been repaired over time and rebuilt. But the Great Bridge was something that was a major feature because there was really never enough taxes to actually support the bridge and its maintenance. And that was one of the biggest things because in the 17th century, the Puritans, who had settled Massachusetts Bay Colony, decreed that on a Sunday, if you did not attend meeting, it was a punishable offense. You could be fined. So if the Great Bridge was out of commission and you couldn't get across the river and you missed 
you know, meeting, many people took that very seriously. And there were a series of problems. And I go into great detail in the introduction. This book was not only fascinating to write, but I read these two books, which are volume one and volume two by Winship of the history of Brighton. And these were published in the late 1890s. And it was ironic. Over the last summer, I must have read them from cover to cover on three, maybe four occasions. And I was fascinated to actually see how much history there really was. And of course, in 1867, part of what is today Brighton became known as Alston because of the post office. It was named for Washington Alston, the great painter of the 19th century. But Alston and Brighton are two contiguous neighborhoods, now somewhat separate but equal, under the auspices of Brighton of 1807. But you realize in some ways that adjacent to the city of Boston, especially on Commonwealth Avenue, it reaches all the way to the Newton border. And in that aspect today, it is a place that has every demographic, every age group. It has wonderful students from the various universities, both as undergraduate and graduate students, and a wonderful overlay of people that have called Brighton and Alston home for decades. And there was an area called L.A., Lower Alston, Rocks. it was called L.A. Rock City, Lower Alston, because a lot of bands That's right. would live there. One observation, doesn't you can follow up if you like. So the it was a cattle area mm-hmm. even before the railroads came, and I thought maybe Correct. it was a cattle area because of the railroad, but no, it must have been a place that was on the trail where they would drive the cattle from somewhere else. Well, they did. And they were market days. And the surprising thing is Brighton Center is today a thriving thoroughfare. It's Washington Street, uh, Chestnut Hill Avenue, and Market Street. And the name Market Street came from the cattle market. And what is today roughly the site of the Rockland Bank, which is at the corner of Market and Washington Streets, was originally the Cattle Fair Hotel. And the hotel was a very large building. It was actually enlarged and remodeled by William Washburn, a very well-known architect in the 19th century. But directly behind it was where they held the cattle fair. And the fair itself was something that on a weekly basis, not only did they drive cattle, but they also drove sheep and various other types of animals that would then be sold at auction. And these were an important part of the economy of Brighton. Of course, these cattle drovers themselves would bring them from as far afield as possibly even Worcester or Sudbury. When they arrived in Brighton, of course, it was market day, and it was a huge cavalcade of different people of all walks of life, people buying, people selling all sorts of things, not only food and apples, but the hotel would put up many of these people who were the purchasers as well as the sellers as well as the drovers. And it was something that was really not just a wonderful aspect, but it was also a major feature. And we realized that Market Street was the street that they would drive the cattle from the fair, and many of them would then eventually go to the slaughtering yards. And the abattoir was a series of buildings that were along the Charles River. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So throughout the 19th century, you began to realize that this was a major part of not just Brighton's economy, but it was part of the economy of all of Eastern Massachusetts. Now, I guess, since we mentioned the, the meat area, the meat area, talk about that building that is now a pizzeria, and it's been there a long time. You can see in the in the very, very old pictures, it looks pretty much the same. Maybe you can talk about the evolution of that. Well, I think when you think about Pizzeria Regina, this was a major feature of the development of Brighton and Alston in the 19th century. At one time, there was the Boston and Albany Railroad, and it connected the city of Boston and the city of Albany in New York. 
Today, it actually is the train track that actually parallels the Massachusetts Turnpike. But in Brighton and Alston, they had various depots that represented commuter stations into downtown Boston. And in that aspect, it created a streetcar suburb, a suburban development that took place in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s that would eventually lead in some aspects to the building of these passenger depots. Well, the one you're talking about is the Alston Depot. It's a wonderful stone building. It's actually something from designs by H.H. Richardson, the great architect who was a partner in the firm of Gambrell and Richardson. But it wasn't built until after his death, and it was actually to be known as the Shepley, Rutan and Coolidge Building, the successor firm to H.H. Richardson. When this was built between 1886 and 1887, it represented the waiting station for the Alston Depot. And today, of course, we've seen tremendous amounts of new aspects of transportation in Alston. This building, though, today survives. And in some ways, it survived in a manner of guises. In the 19th century, it was something that was used by commuters. But it later became the Railway Express Agency and Waiting Station, the Alston Depot Steakhouse, the Sports Depot Restaurant, and now it's the Pizzeria Regina. And in that aspect, we can have a wonderful pizza as we see not only trains whizzing by the windows, but of course, automobiles on the Massachusetts Turnpike. And you begin to realize how important transportation was in the development of any city or town in Massachusetts in the 19th century. The whole aspect of transportation was something that revolutionized how we lived. No longer now was it horses or horses and carriages. It was now a train. And that train was something that not only saw the Boston and Providence, Boston and Albany, but a whole series of different trains that would actually connect Boston to various parts of New England. Different areas of town have different ethnic groups at different times. Yes. Is that the case with Brighton? Well, it is. Brighton in the 19th century was primarily people of English descent as well as the new Irish immigrants. But by the period of the turn of the 20th century, we begin to realize that Brighton itself, and I mentioned this in a huge introduction, it's over four pages, that talked about many of the new ethnic groups that were coming to the Boston area. And one of them were the Santa Denais. You know, every year we go to Italy and we stay at a villa in San Donato Val de Camino. And Joe's family actually comes from there. His parents were born and raised there and they didn't come to this country until they were teenagers. But the whole idea was that Brighton and Newton would have a large number of people who were not only Italian, but of course the children of, you know, the Santa Denise that would come to Alston, Brighton. We also saw in some aspects in the 20th century a large number of Jewish because not only were they living within an area and it was a walkable area for their places of worship, but you began to realize that the neighborhood embraced new residents of all walks of life who diversified the earlier residents, and they did include the Jewish, Italian, and Irish, and many other immigrants and their children, and that the population today of close to 75,000 people, but the demographics are just in constant flux. And people, some of which have been in the town for generations, would actually look at this as something that wasn't just a neighborhood of Boston, but it had its own identity. And when I did this research, it was just tremendous. Winship's history was something that I almost felt had so many tidbits of bits and pieces that I would say to people, did you know? And I think by the time the book was finally finished, I think they were relieved because I was coming up with all sorts of different tidbits on the history of Alston and Brighton. I was looking at a photo of the Cattle Fair Hotel, which seemed like a very grand kind of hotel you might see in Denver, kind of a cattleman place. Now, and then the, and the, we'll talk about that, but then the photo, the, the now photo is sad to me. It's kind of well, a one-story brick sadness. Yes, the Cattle Fair Hotel was grand. I wouldn't have thought it uh, Denver, but this was something that was the pride of place of Brighton in the 19th century. And when it was built in 1830, it did represent a place where many of the you know, cattle dealers and drovers and various people would actually stay. 
But it was something that would greatly be enlarged in 1852 by William Washburn. Now, to give you an idea, William Washburn in the 19th century was a very astute and very well-respected architect. He actually designed the Charlestown City Hall, which was at City Square in Charlestown. And he was very well known. So this building was enlarged, and it was 100 rooms. It had dining rooms. It had a ballroom. It was really, it was incredible. But the whole idea was that this was a place that served fantastic steaks. Now, you had to realize Brighton was known for its meat. Now, in that instance, of course, the cattle yards themselves would actually see the meat actually being cut, and it was something that would actually be supplied to the Cattle Fair Hotel. Well, there was a man by the name of Zachariah Porter, who actually was the founder of the Porter House Hotel in Cambridge. He actually worked as the manager at the Cattle Fair Hotel. He served a very good dining room. And the idea was one of the things that was available was the porterhouse steak. And in this instance, not only was Porter Square named for Zachariah Porter when he moved to Cambridge, but the porterhouse steak, which is something we can even get at the supermarket today, was something that would actually be served. So what better place in this instance than to see a steak on the menu? This may be beyond the scope of this discussion, but what is the cut of the—do you happen to know what a porterhouse steak is? Because I don't. Well, I don't, actually, but I know that actually it's a very expensive cut of meat. It's beautifully marbled. It's a specific cut, Okay. but I don't think it's— it's even a better cut than sirloin. Really? If because of the marbleization. If anybody out there is a butcher, <laughs> a butcher, let us know. All right. Is there anything else to talk about? As far well, as one of hotel? the things is it was so important that it was actually even depicted in one of the major newspapers of the day, which was Gleason's Pictorial Drawing Room Companion. This was something that Frederick Gleason, who was a German immigrant, who actually started the pictorial newspaper would actually depict, and I love the picture because it not only shows in the foreground the drovers and the cattle that are actually being driven to the fair, but in the distance one can actually see the first church of Brighton in the distance that was at the corner of Market and Washington Street. Today, Remax Realty, which is today in the old Rourke building. The building survived until 1895, But today, there is a one-story commercial block that includes not only Johnny D's, our wonderful grocery store that actually provides fresh vegetables and fruits on a daily basis, Daniel's Bakery, the Rockland uh, Bank, the Venetian Salon, and of course, the Brighton and Alston Lock and Hardware. You have to realize that somewhat utilitarian in design and scope but it replaces that wonderful hotel that survived until 1895. Brighton Center truly was the center of the town, and in the 19th century, it was accessible to Boston by streetcars, and the streetcars are depicted in the book thanks to a friend of mine by the name of Frank Cheney. Frank is a transit historian, and he himself had probably over 40 photographs that were actually loaned for this book. So you had to realize that Peter Kingman had some fantastic things to actually copy. And again, if you look at this book, you begin to realize that they're almost precise. Not only do you see the original photograph, but Peter's created them in a way that they're actually the same depth of field, the same zoning, so to speak, and the same aspect in every single photograph, old and new. And that's what makes through time books so fun. You can actually see what is there today and recognize it. But then you realize there was something there at one time that is no longer there. So this hotel, the Cattle Fair Hotel, I'm trying to picture exactly what corner it was on. So if you're on Market Street coming away from the Stockyard towards Stockyard Restaurant. Okay. And you're headed toward Brighton Center. Yes. When you get to Washington Street. It'd it's be on, on the, the right hand side. On the side. right hand side before Correct. you cross the street. Correct. Okay. And in that aspect, you begin to see that not just the hotel, but then Brighton Center on the opposite corner of Market and Washington Street was a building that was known as 
Rourke's. Today, of course, you have to realize it was the Imperial Hotel and the Washington Building. And these were two buildings adjacent to one another that created not only commercial space on the ground floor, but again, up above, one was, of course, the Imperial Hotel, which actually served the needs of people for a hotel, but also apartments. And the building is a wonderful aspect in the middle of the center of Brighton. And in that way, the Imperial Hotel, which dated to 1907, offered, quote, every accommodation usual with a first-class hotel, unquote, as well as private supper and banquet rooms. But Rourke's Pharmacy, which was located on the ground floor of the building, which actually is today Remax Realty, truly the center of the demographics of all of Brighton. What was where a St. Elizabeth Hospital is now? Well, originally that was Nevins Hill. And Nevins Hill is something that you had to realize that was a grand mansion at the very top of the hill. But in the 19th century, as Brighton had become part of the city of Boston in 1874 when it was annexed, between 1875 and the turn of the 20th century, you began to realize Brighton was seeing tremendous development. Now, one of the photographs that I actually have in the book is of the old Brighton Hospital. And it's so surprising that this was something that was so small. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm astonished when I did this book of Brighton's uh, continued development. But there's a photograph, and it's on page 80, that shows St. Elizabeth's Hospital when it was designed by Edward T.P. Graham. Again, a very well-known architect in the early part of the 20th century. But St. Elizabeth's Hospital had originally started in Boston's South End, and it was moved to Brighton in the early part of the 20th century. And in that instance, they used a Spanish mission style that would eventually be increased in size and scale throughout the 20th century, so that eventually, by the latter part of the 1990s, you began to see the entire area. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Completely rebuilt, and there was almost no overlay whatsoever of the original buildings. So what had once been almost like a community-type hospital has now become one of the major hospitals of the city of Austin. In your photo, you can see what looks like the main part, and it does look kind of Spanish. And it, all those square, boxy, relatively unattractive buildings out back came later. 1940s and early 1950s, And yes. the Spanish-looking part was when? 1914 to okay. 1917, and that was by Edward T.B. Graham. Okay. But, you know, you had to realize there's a whole chapter that actually talks about Brighton and Alston institutions. And it's not just St. Elizabeth's Hospital, but it goes the gamut of Braves Field that was on Commonwealth Avenue on the edge of Boston and Alston, the Ellen Merrick Gifford Animal Shelter, the Florence Crittenden Home and Hospital, as well as the United States Marine Hospital, but I also include things such as the Franciscan Missionaries of Mary, which actually later became known as the Joseph P. Kennedy Memorial, and also the West Department of the Massachusetts Homeopathic Hospital. A lot of people might go to um, Whole Foods, which is on Washington Street on the Brookline Brighton line. And in that aspect, that parking lot was once a very well-known hospital. So I, I'm always astonished but we also have so many different religious organizations and the Senecal Convent, which is still on Lake Street, which today has become Education First International Language Campus. And you begin to see in some ways that each of these things contribute to that overlay of 19th and 20th century development of Bryce, Brighton and Alston. We'll take a look at the strip of Harvard Street between Commonwealth Avenue and Brighton Avenue, which is some an area that I've spent a lot of time on. I go to Mr. Music, the guitarist, 
place and go to those restaurants along there. And it's evolving very quickly. It's a place where students, it's a very student-centric place where it was, it may be changing. They have a store there where you can get super cheap mattresses. They, it's, it's become a street of frozen yogurt. It's become a street of Korean restaurants. And in the restaurants, you can look in there and see, it seems largely supported by Koreans. The area is becoming very Asian. And I've, I'm thrilled about it because I feel like I can go there and get legitimate, real Asian Korean food. Well, it's not just Korean food, but it's young Koreans that are there. And I am always astonished at these restaurants, which are very small. And there are things that go the gamut again from Korean to Chinese to Thai as well as Italian, all in one block, you begin to realize in some ways how very different that neighborhood really is. Well, in these photographs, they go the gamut from things that Frank Cheney had loaned me of earlier things such as um, streetcars that were on Harvard and Commonwealth Avenue that would connect Brighton with Roxbury. But I actually acquired some things that were actually on eBay. And I check eBay on a daily basis. It's something I might actually do five or 10 times a day. But I'm always intrigued to find photographs that actually chronicle the streetscapes of Boston because there's always a book in the back of my mind. But one of them of Harvard Avenue, and it's a 1921 postcard, and it looks towards Brighton. There's a one-story commercial block, much like the one we spoke of earlier in Brighton Center. But this one is in full color, and it goes the gamut from the Commonwealth Cafe and Farquharson's Candy Shop, F.W. Woolworth & Company, Flato Hardware. But we see in some ways that today, a century later, that the same streetscape is there. Granted, some of the facades have changed a little, but the whole aspect was, again, it's small business. And that's something that's really quite important. That's the mainstay of the economy of any city or town. But in this aspect with Alston and that area, it has changed so tremendously. In the 19th century, the area of not only Commonwealth Avenue, but Brighton Avenue and Harvard Avenue, it was a residential area. And they were places of worship in juxtaposed within the community. But by the early part of the 20th century, we began to see the zoning changing. One-story commercial blocks would be built, and in that way, they survived to this day, almost a century later, that were not only banks, restaurants, small shops, tailoring shops, supermarkets, but we see in some ways that each one of these actually contribute to that streetscape factor that actually shows what this book is all about. So I think it's a really important way that these through-time books do chronicle that evolution over the period between the advent of photography and, of course, postcards of the early 20th century, but Peter Kingman's very evocative photographs of today. And being in color, they almost look just like they do as either we drive by or take public transportation into the city. In the strip that you now may recognize these, uh, this Al, this Al's, no, all checks cashed. Yes. There's uh, K-Town. That's probably a little restaurant. Mr. Music. And there used to be, oh, gosh, Steve, the Steve's uh, Breakfast Place, which is still there. And then wow. you look at what used to be there, and you mentioned Flato's or Flato's, D.A. Flato. Hardware. Hardware, cutlery, Lucas, and kitchen furnishings. Yeah. Then, the, uh, as you mentioned, F.W. Woolworth and 5 and 10 cent store. Broody's, B-R-O-U-D-Y-S. What was yes. that? I think it was a um, a lunch counter. Okay. And a candy shop and a cafe. And it's important to note that you can see tracks, train tracks down that street. What line or would that have been? Was it a train or a, well, that a was bus, an electric bus or something? It was a streetcar that connected Alston to Dudley, and it was called the Alston-Dudley Line. This was an important feature of cross-town transportation because on page 31, you can actually see the streetcar itself. So it might have taken maybe a half hour to have gotten to Dudley Street Station, but then you also had at that point the elevated railway. So you might go to Forest Hills or you might go into Boston, but the whole aspect was it connected one part of the city to the other. 
And I like it because in that aspect, not only do I have a photograph, thanks to Frank Cheney, of the original Dudley to Alston streetcar, but Peter Kingman has actually photographed the same scene almost 100 years later, and it actually has a bus, the same Alston to Dudley connection. Yes, and I, that's fun. So that Alston Dudley route is now the '66 bus. Exactly. Basically, and I mean, there's a photograph there that actually shows it on page 31. Yeah. You know, when you look at this, you realize that Alston and Brighton have this wonderful melange of different housing and architectural styles: one-family houses, two-family houses, apartment buildings, and then, of course, these enormous apartment buildings along Commonwealth Avenue, and. You have to realize the last chapter of this book actually is along Commonwealth Avenue. There's a photograph that actually shows uh, the Brighton streetcar. And this is a photograph, I want to say around 1896, that actually is photographed just short of uh, Lake Street at Chestnut Hill. And it's something that would connect Brighton with Union Station, which is now North Station at Causeway Street. So the streetcar line along Commonwealth Avenue, which I have taken, and it did take me an hour and a half the time I took it (laughs) to North Station, was something that actually revolutionized how our ancestors actually would get into the city. So sometimes I used to think it was easier to walk than to take the streetcar. (laughs) Let's jump into Oak Square. Oak Square is kind of a green space at the junction of Washington, Tremont, Nonentum, and Bigelow and Fennell Streets. I never, for some reason, my travels never really took me to Oak Square, so I don't know much about it. It's wonderful. Oak Square is something that is really another of the neighborhoods. I had the two beginning chapters of this book, which was Brighton Center, and the second chapter was Oak Square. Oak Square was named for the Great Oak that was in the very center, which is today a green park. And the Great Oak was something that not only had this enormous canopy of leaves that would actually shade throughout the 17th and 18th century, but it was also the location of the first school. In that aspect, Oak Square itself, and the name comes down to us today, was also the home of Joseph Breck. Now, I'm sure many people, like me, are anticipating their Breck seed catalog, and this was something that was published throughout the 19th and, of course, now the 21st century, by Breck and Company. Well, Joseph Breck, who was once president of the Massachusetts Horticultural Society, lived at the corner of what is today Nonantum and Washington Street. And the building itself is Fiorello's Pizza. And it's a wonderful aspect. But there's a photograph on page 21 that shows the house along with the um, school that's actually on Nonantum Street that actually is an extremely well-known school known as the Oak Square School. And then on the far right-hand side, the Schillaber House, which was actually going up um, Washington Street. So this is a great photograph that shows something that within memory of some people actually was still there. But today... You have the Presentation School, which is uh, now a community center on the site of the Schillaber House. The Oak Square School still survives, but as condominiums, it's been repurposed. And the site of the Breck House itself is, again, Fiorello's, but a one-story commercial block. So the whole area has changed. All right. Anthony Samarco, author of many, a book on the Boston area. Let's talk about the Great Molasses Flood. Have you done a dedicated Molasses Flood book yet? I haven't done a Molasses book yet, but in Lost Boston, which is a book that was published by Pavilion Press in London uh, a couple of years ago, I have one of the entries, which was on the Boston Molasses Tank. And I talk about it basically when January 15th of 1919, it exploded. But the surprising thing is, you know, people are a little astonished. And today... If anybody has actually looked at Facebook, it seems as though there's been hundreds of entries, whether it's actually a newspaper or a radio station or just people in between that actually post about this because it's a mind-boggling aspect. The Great Molasses Flood was something that had a 2.3 million gallon tank that actually exploded. But a lot of people don't even know exactly where it was located. And Commercial Street on the North End is that very gently curving aspect 
of Commercial Street. And on the right-hand side, between Commercial Street and, of course, the Boston Harbor, is today what they call um, Puapolo and Langone Parks. But in the early part of the 20th century, that was an area that was the North End Beach, if you can imagine the North End having a beach. And adjacent to that was the molasses tank that was owned by the Purity Distilling Company. And the Purity Distilling Company actually would import molasses and it would be pumped from a tanker that would be located on the Boston Harbor. And the molasses itself was a sweetening agent, but in that aspect, the Purity was using as basically for munitions. After World War I, of course, it was something you realized that munitions were no longer as important as they were during the war, but it was also something that the molasses would be used for a variety of purposes. Well, the tank itself, as I mentioned, was 2.3 million gallons. It was 50 feet in height, 90 feet wide, meaning that it was four stories in height. So when we think of molasses, we usually think of a small bottle of grandma's molasses that's usually on our kitchen shelf. It's a staple item. We might use a couple of tablespoons if we make molasses cookies or we make gingerbread. But can you imagine 2.3 million gallons and you begin to realize the magnitude of this? Well, the story was that on January 15th of 1919, in the early morning hours, it was below freezing. But as typical in Boston, by noontime, the weather itself had warmed up considerably. Now, molasses itself was kept in a tank, and the tank itself had leaked for years. And the city of Boston was well aware of this, but there was no measure of weights and seals, nor was there anyone who basically inspected the tank. Molasses, when it heats, expands. The expansion by the heat was something that caused the rivets to pop as well as the seams to give way. When it gave way, it was something in this neighborhood that was both commercial as well as residential, the aspect that this would cascade with 10-foot tidal waves of molasses. Now, molasses is like water. It can be very dense. And in that aspect, it was something that created almost a 30 mile per hour um, tidal flow. When the 50 feet of the tank gave way, the tank actually collapsed. You began to realize it engulfed everything within its sight. Not only humans and animals, such as horses, dogs, and cats, but every form of street life. And it was said that 21 died, as well as dozens of horses that either were killed or had to be put down. But the molasses was so thick, anywhere from two to three feet in any given aspect, that you realized it swept everything in its path. Now, there was aspect of an elevated railway between North Station and South Station. So it went along Causeway Street, Commercial Street, Atlantic Avenue, and eventually arrived at Dewey Square at South Station. That elevated railway had steel girders. And if your listeners are as old as I am, they remember the steel girders that actually were for the elevated railway, especially in Roxbury and Charlestown. They were solid, but you would see them actually bent because things that were swept by the current of the molasses caused them to crash into the girders. And thankfully, there was no train directly above. I remember as a kid coming to town, and there was the the elevated railway that would come into North Station when you would go to the circus. Is yes. The one that goes to Haymarket, and somewhere between Haymarket and North Station, that's where it was? No, it went from North Station along Causeway Street. Um, okay. And if you remember the old Pocari's restaurant at North Washington Street and Commercial okay. Street, straight down Commercial Street. All right. And it was removed in 1942. It was actually scrap metal. Um, they ended that line, and they basically took the elevated down, and you would still see steel girders afterwards. But in this period of 1919, it was a major feature getting from North Station to South Station. And it was just 
so important. But you had to realize, and in some of the photographs that I've brought in, you began to realize the magnitude of this destruction. So it wasn't just the fact that entire buildings were swept away. Engine 31 of the Boston Fire Department was a wooden structure. It was actually taken off its foundations and pushed to the edge of Boston Harbor. There was devastation of the wooden shacks and wooden buildings, as well as, of course, the street life. I can only see one picture of the tank itself. And from it's tough to know how far away it is. And, and in terms of the building, I'm using to measure it by. But it seems like it might have been three and a half, four stories high and maybe 75 feet across. Is it, is it like that? Well, it that? was four stories in height, but it was actually, um, I believe, 50 feet across. 50 feet across. And the idea was in that aspect, it was almost adjacent to the... Um, Sidewalk. It was not far in. So what caused it to explode? If it did, in fact, explode. People said they heard an explosion, but that might have just been the popping wood, of wood rivets. cracking or something. Well, it might have been the popping of rivets as well as the seams of the tank actually letting go. The surprising thing is, as the morning was very cold, when the molasses heated as the day warmed up, and it was 50 degrees by noontime, you began to realize the molasses itself began to expand. And by doing that, what they did was to burst the seams of the molasses tank. Not only did the rivets let go, but the seams simply gave way. Much like the Titanic, it was the type of a material that was actually too thin for the intensity of the molasses that would have actually expanded. Obviously, the tank was filled to capacity. It just simply let go, and when it did, it just cascaded down. Remember, it's four stories in height. It's a huge tank. But in that aspect, it was something that caused so much devastation in such a short period of time that it was to become almost part of our folklore history until people realized it really did happen. So there's... A tale that on a hot summer's day, you can smell the molasses. Yeah, I've heard people poo-poo that, but, you know, you're the guy. I'll, I'll believe whatever you say. Is it? Well, is that is that true? People say it. I When I was a child, I would take walks with my paternal grandfather, Luigi Samarco, and we would meet him sometimes on a Saturday in the North End, and we would walk around. I heard the story from him. He lived in the North End at that time. They didn't move to Medford until 1921. So in 1919, he would have been fairly young. I mean, my, he wasn't married until 1921. So I assume that he basically not only saw it, everyone probably saw it. It was one of those things that was a to-go-to place. But the whole aspect was, don't forget, two to three feet deep. So it must have permeated cobblestones, wood, um, the Copse Hill burial ground that was directly across the street, the staircase that leads to that. So everything was probably permeated with the molasses, and you could probably still smell it within months or years afterwards. Recently, Any wooden structure would have been imbued with that stuff definitely. forever. But even you know, brick is porous yeah. and things of that sort. So in a hot, muggy August day, maybe. But the whole aspect was it was something that was just devastating. And it's fortunate that not more people were killed. But there's a little bit more to it because actually that night it again froze over. So molasses froze. And the horses and humans who were admired in this molasses, sometimes a few people weren't even found for a week, and then later, even one, I think, a month later, was devastating, but it also led to some very important changes, especially through weights and seals through the city of Boston and inspecting of any type of a container that would hold any type of material like molasses. This tank itself was something that, you know, did explode, and there was a huge molasses flood, but there'd been problems earlier. And one of the things that I mentioned, and this is a quote that's from Lost Boston, the book that I did with Pavilion Press in London, and I say, quote, previous complaints by North End residents of cracks and steady leaks in the tank, which had been covered with brown paint by the company to obscure the evidence, 
were brought to the public's attention and a lengthy class action lawsuit brought forward the damaging evidence that resulted in a settlement to those whose families had been killed. But the surprising thing is the settlement was less than $7,000 per person that had died. Practically nothing, probably a lot of money for many of these people that lived in the inner city in the North End. Purity Distilling Company, who in this aspect claimed guilt by giving out payments, had known about it for years when it did cause that devastation and wreaked havoc on a neighborhood, both residential and commercial. The North End itself, with this very rich and ever-evolving history, now had this, the Great Molasses Flood. Now, the surprising thing is I teach at Boston University at the Metropolitan College, and one of the courses you know, aspects is is to touch upon the history of Boston from the time it was settled in 1630 by the Puritans to today. So one of the things I talk about in the 18th century is, of course, molasses. And I talk about it as the aspect of molasses from the slave trade to the Great Flood of 1919. Molasses was part of the world economy of the 18th century, the triangle trade between Africa, the West Indies, the West Indies and Boston, and Boston and Africa. And you saw that not only was molasses used in the distillation of rum, but rum would then be sold in aspect or traded for slaves on the west coast of Africa. So in that way, molasses takes on new meaning for my students, just like when I lecture on tea which was something that created the Boston Tea Party, the biggest tea party Boston ever saw. So these very mundane staples that are on our kitchen shelf, whether it's tea or molasses or even sugar, you have to realize has a history. And the Great Molasses Flood, surprisingly, which is the 100th anniversary on January 15th, that's part of not only our history, but the history that we transmit to our children and grandchildren for the future. One additional quick thing about molasses is that it was used in war and not for eating, but there was another reason. Well, munitions. One of the things is, you know, the Purity Distilling Company in some ways, they, they did produce alcohol, but the idea was also that this was a tank that when it exploded, many people said that it was actually an atticus act, that it was something that it had been exploded. Many people had said it was something that might have been because of the advent of prohibition, but it was also the fact it was something that in this aspect had never been inspected. Well, Anthony, it's... That time again, that sad time. We won't get to see you for I don't know where the time goes. It just flies by. Thank you so much. Congratulations on this wonderful book. That was another Jay Talking Podcast. If you loved what you heard, like and review the show. It helps others find us. Subscribe to the Jay Talking Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. Follow me on Twitter for show updates. And as always, you can catch the show live every weeknight starting Sunday, midnight to five on WBZ, Boston's News Radio. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.